Hello, good morning and welcome everyone. Uh, thank you all for joining us at the Black Consciousness Festival. Um, today we are having a really interesting discussion with uh, Dr. Sylvian Diouf. Uh, welcome Dr. Diouf to the Black Consciousness Festival. Uh, today we are going to be uh, dis discussing or sharing information about how it all began um, basically, a conversation about the events that preceded the colonial project, the complex and diverse historical context for the transatlantic slave trade and reparations being paid to descendants of Africans enslaved in the Americas. Good morning, Dr. Deuce. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Great. And you are coming to us uh, from New York City, sir? Yes. Lovely. Um, and so let's get right into the conversation. Or oh, actually, let me tell our guests a little bit about you. Um, Dr. Sylviane Diouf is an award-winning social historian of the African diaspora. She is a visiting scholar at Brown University Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. She's curated 12 exhibitions and authored and edited 13 books. A social historian, Dr. Duke focuses on uncovering essential stories and topics that were overlooked or negated, which offer new insights into the African diaspora. She has a special interest in the experience of the Africans deported through the international slave trade to the Atlantic and Indian Ocean worlds, including the particular experience of African Muslims. Dr. Duke is the author of the acclaimed book Servants of Allah, African Muslims Enslaved in the Americas. And she has won several prizes for Dreams of Africa in Alabama, The Slave Ship Clotilda, and the Story of the Last Africans Brought to America, and is the author more recently of Slavery's Exiles, the Story of the American Marine. So, Dr. Duke, let's dive right into um, our conversation. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your own personal history. It's very interesting. Tell us about your own story and how that led and motivated you to do the work you have dedicated your life to. Um, thank you uh, for that question. Um, I was born in France, uh, near Paris, about 10 minutes from, uh, from Paris, in a suburb of about 50,000 people. Uh, my father was a physicist, he was uh, from Senegal. My mother was um, uh, a, a principal uh, and French. And when I say was, I mean, she's still with us. Um, but of course, she's no longer a school principal. Right. Um, and um, so we live there, you know, with my, uh, my sister and my brother. And even though it may look it may look very strange, but it took me decades, really decades, to realize that we were the only black people in the city. Wow. I never felt uh, different from anybody, neither did my uh, siblings. Uh, we were never made to feel different. So it really, again, you know, we, all of us, you know, uh, we realized we were the only blacks, uh, you know, in school or in the uh, in the city when we were maybe I don't know. For me, it must have been you know, in, in my thirties. Mm -hmm. uh, things have changed. Uh, if I were growing up uh, uh, there today, I would probably know 
uh, very early that I was not like everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's something happened uh, and something happened on TV. Uh, I saw uh, dogs attacking people Ooh. and uh, it was in the United States. Um, I, there were black people, but I, to me, that didn't mean anything because I was, I had no, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I had no racial consciousness. So the fact that they were black, you know, that had nothing, mm -hmm. uh, that did nothing to me. Right. Uh, I just was totally appalled by the fact that people could, uh, could have dogs attack other people. And to me, I mean, I was young. Uh, I thought it was the worst thing that people could do to other people. Mm -hmm. So that really stayed with me. And um, over the years, I tried to understand what it was. You know, of course, it was, you know, the civil rights movement. And um, I discovered slavery. I mean, for me, it was really a discovery because I had never heard of that. I had never heard of racism. Right. Um, I had not lived racism. Um, actually, when I talked you know, to my parents about the fact that you know, my father was the first black person uh, in our town, um, they said, you know, again, you know, they never experienced any looks or remarks or anything. So all of that was completely uh, foreign to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I discovered slavery and racism, um, I was, you know, I was in shock. <laughs> and I, you know, started to look further into it, etc. you know, over the years. And um, I ended up um, doing my dissertation um, on resistance to slavery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was really, so that was many, many years, many decades ago. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing um, ever since. Um, and, um, what I really re realized, you know, when I when I started, but also uh, more and more as I, you know, as I work, you know, on that uh, in that field, yeah. is that uh, there is there are a million things that still need to be discovered mm -hmm. and written about. We we have really just scratched the surface. The surface, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's absolutely uh, similar to, to the things that we hear from, from other people that we've been having conversations with. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting that, that there's this common thread. You've said in previous interviews that you're a social historian, yeah? Um, tell us what that means. Well, you know, I think that, um, first of all, the reason why I write not because I know those extraordinary things that I want to share with the world. Uh, I write about something because I don't know anything about that topic. Okay. And so the first thing I do is to look for books and on that. And if I don't find any, then I said, okay, so I will write a book. And so I start the research. And 
the you know the questions that I have are very very simple very um, you know it's it's really about the people mm -hmm. what was their life like mm -hmm. what was their experience I'm really not interested in kind of the history from the you know from the top of or political history or economic uh, history right. I'm really interested in um, you know in the individuals in the small mm -hmm. in the people and really interested uh, you know again in their daily lives in their experiences so for example um you know i had read i mean i had read uh, many books on maroons you know in in, uh, in cuba in brazil in suriname mm -hmm. in jamaica of course and um i had questions about what about the united states yeah. and i couldn't find anything you know except for maroons in florida but it's very particular case Mm -hmm. So I started to, you know, to look into that and um, I, you know, I found out that actually uh, probably most Maroons in the United States were living not, you know, in faraway places, you know, like in Jamaica, in the mountains or in, uh, you know, or in uh, Brazil. Mm -hmm. They were living really at the border of plantations, farms and cities. Oh. And I, you know, and I called them borderland maroons. And I was surprised by that because I, and I was wondering, okay, so if you live so close to inhabited areas, you have good reasons to do that, but it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So how do you, um, how do you build a life there? And what I saw is that, you know, people wanted to keep are in close contact with their loved ones who are still enslaved. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were strategies why people would, part of the family would become maroons and the other part would stay on plantations. Or, mm -hmm. or but then, you know, when you look at how do you live there, you know, since you cannot cultivate, you cannot raise animals, yeah. where do you get your food? Uh, what kind of food is it? Yeah. What kind of clothes do you wear? Mm -hmm. um, what, what kind of habitat do you have? Mm -hmm. And that is where I discovered something that totally astonished me. Um, many of those borderland mar maroons were actually living underground. Oh, wow. In what they, they call their house uh, dens or caves. So mm -hmm. they dug houses like six feet under and uh, they closed them, you know, with a trap door, very well camouflaged mm -hmm. so that wouldn't be seen from above. Yeah. And they would stay there sometimes for years. I mean, you know, I have one example um, which, which really struck me mm -hmm. was this couple in Virginia uh, who live in a cave with their 15 children for over 15 years. 15 children, wow. <laughs> and it was incredible. And some of those caves were well uh, furnished um, and people would, would build uh, pipes uh, that would take the smoke out far away so that they wouldn't be uh, found. They wouldn't be found. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people arrange a whole life underground. But it was also very hard, especially for children, because some of those children never got out of the caves. 
Wow. So it shows you, you know, first of all, the ingenuity, the ingenuity of people who are able to create a completely new life for yeah. themselves, mm -hmm. but also the horror of mm. being enslaved because that was living that way was much better than being enslaved. Yeah. Um, I also found that I also looked at the lives um, of the people who are further away, uh, uh, whom I called uh, the hinterland maroons. Right. And so sometimes there were groups of 20 to 80 people. Mm -hmm. And you know they had uh, they had gardens, they had crops, they, had, mm -hmm. they raised some animals. Yeah. Uh, but again, they did not. Even though they were further away, they were not very far because they still also wanted to keep in touch, you know, with the people in the cities and the, and on the farms and plantations. Mm -hmm. And they also wanted to have access to uh, all the stuff that they could not produce. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they had themselves, just like the borderland Maroons did, uh, in the storehouses of the slaveholders, they robbed, you know, the, the stores, you know, that kind of things. Mm -hmm. So you have really a, a kind of a, an, unknown, an unknown world living very close to, uh, you know, to the cities, uh, the yeah. farm and the plantation and all of them able to create a completely new life. Um, I, I found that totally fascinating. Yeah. Now, I also, um, you know, there were two books that were published on um, the slave ship wanderer, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a ship that arrived in Georgia with about 40, uh, 400 people on board in 1858. Mm -hmm. And there were two, as I mentioned, there were two books written about uh, that story. And it was all, <clears throat> all about the white men who organized, you know, this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, expedition yeah. and the rivalries and, uh, you know, the, the politics of the time and the economics, this, that, and the other. And yeah. there are like a few pages on the people who were on the, uh, show. On the ship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I decided to write a book on the last known slave ship to the United States, the Plotilda, which arrived in Alabama in July of 1860, mm -hmm. my view as a social historian, again, was completely different. I didn't care. I was not going to write about the white men, blah, blah, blah. I was interested really in the people who were on the ship, right. um, reconstructing their lives in Benin and Nigeria before and then uh, during the Middle Passage and during slavery and after, you know, they became free five years later and they founded a town that still exists, Africa Town, where oh, wow. some of their, uh, some of their uh, 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 descendants uh, And by the way, the ship itself, the Clotilda, was discovered, um, you know, sunk um, in... Um, in 2019. Yeah. So again, you know, I was really interested in the lives of the people uh, throughout, you know, uh, until the last one died. Mm -hmm. In Africa Town, the last one died in 1935. So I also look at the lives of their children, right. um, how culture was passed on, etc. So 
this is really so that's what social history is really yeah. again you know history from from the bottom yeah. um looking at the way that that uh, that people lived and and that really gives us um you know a good um uh, idea because usually uh you know i think that people mostly think that um, when they think about the people who were enslaved, they think about numbers, about a mass of mm -hmm. people and whose stories cannot really be known. Mm -hmm. And actually it can be yeah. known. Yeah. Um, it's not easy because, uh, you know, there are few uh, I mean, the people themselves left few written traces. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, when you go to the archives, or, you know, you have to really read the sources against the grain, mm -hmm. um, explore sources that have not been explored, um, reinterpret a lot of the things that have been uh, written about or said. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, uh, uh, detective work, work yeah. if you will, um, but it pretty put um, you know really the human um, human face on 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 people, and I think that's really uh, today that's indispensable. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really giving voice to the voiceless, right, and and revealing these essential stories that as people of African descent, we are, are yet to hear. You're absolutely right, but there are very few of these written accounts. And um, and I could kind of identify with you about the detective work because I was recently working on a project to, to pull together stories um, about, you know, this period and slavery. And, and I found myself doing that similar kind of, of work, you know, reading multiple sources and trying to to read in between the sources and, and read what's not actually there. So I, I, I understand that process fully. Um, European colonization, the trafficking and enslavement of Africans in the Americas, you know, it emerged from colonial projects that's, uh, of the Iberian Peninsula, which is specifically Spain and Portugal. But Spain and Portugal were once part of a kingdom called Al-Andalus for over 700 years, yeah? a space where Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived together, you know, which is known as the Convivencia. How did notions of space and the purity of blood um, surface in, in their attempts to, the Christians' attempt to take over the Iberian Peninsula, which is also known as the Reconquista, after hundreds of years, um, of all these diverse peoples living together? And how did that contribute to the creation and the justification of the transatlantic trafficking of Africans for centuries. Yeah, that's you know that's that's really key. And uh, read the colonization of the Americas is the anti-convivencia, mm -hmm. as the supremacy of one people and one religion. Yeah. And um, uh, what happened, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, in Spain uh, at the time was. Uh, the Jews were expelled, yeah. uh, there were forced conversions, mm -hmm. uh, the Muslims who had converted, who had converted to 
uh, uh, and became and became Christian were finally expelled um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was really the uh, with the with the Inquisition, you know, it was really the triumph of terrorist Catholicism, yeah. uh, with people horribly tortured and burned to death. I mean, and that was, by the way, that was transported to the Americas, you know, yep. the, the Inquisition had mm-hmm. seats in Colombia, in Peru, mm-hmm. and, and Mexico. Yes. So what was also created at, 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 at the time was something that was unique, that had never existed before in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was racial slavery. So the linkage of slavery with what we refer today as race. Yeah. So before, um, you, you know, there, there have never been a link between uh, origin and, and slavery. So uh, Europeans and slave Europeans, um, uh, actually, you know, in the 1460s, uh, enslaved West Africans were working in Portugal along yeah. Died, you know, Berbers and Arabs and Turks and Greeks and Slavs, etc. Yeah. Um, and in the Islamic world, uh, uh, slavery had never been uh, based on on race either. You right. know, uh, they enslaved Europeans, they enslaved Africans, they enslaved uh, uh, other people. That was true in the Ottoman Empire. That was true in India as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Africans, just like everybody else, who had been enslaved, were also. Um, it was also possible for them to rise through the ranks and and gain high positions. Okay. Now, what was done for the Americas? So was this this creation, this innovation of only Africans could be enslaved, mm-hmm. and so there was there was. Uh, they needed a justification, you know, for the conquest and for the this enslavement. Yeah. So the idea was that the only truly humans were white people, hmm. and uh, indigenous people in the Americas were inferior, mm-hmm. uh, and Africans were subhumans, mm-hmm. uh, savages, cannibals, uh, pagans. And so they were the only ones who were fit to be enslaved mm-hmm. and only fit to do the most, uh, the most manual, arduous uh, work. Yeah. So that was the creation of racism mm-hmm. and you know, other, um, other colonial powers like France and Great Britain and the Netherlands jumped on that and they you know they they accepted that new concept uh as well so um this is you know not only uh was there this incredibly destructive uh uh, notion but the transatlantic slave trade was also i mean the magnitude Mm -hmm. of the transatlantic slave trade was unparalleled um it, it lasted about 350 years, mm-hmm. and 12 and a half million uh, Africans were deported in 350 years. Wow. Now you can compare that 
to what happened for the rest of, you know, if you take all the other slave states out of Africa and combine them, you know, through the Sahara, the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, uh, mm -hmm. etc., um, you have about the same number of people who were deported, maybe a little less, mm -hmm. but that lasted 1,500 years. Wow. Uh, so just to you know, build up, you know, yeah. uh, build up the point, yeah. 350 years, 12 and a half million people through yeah. the Atlantic, 1500 years, about the same number through all other slave trades combined. Right. Right. So it was the largest slave mm -hmm. trade in history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we look at what happened, so, you know, in, uh, in the Americas, again, in terms of numbers, uh, between 1500 and 1820, mm -hmm. 11.5 million people entered the Americas. Right. 8.9 million of them were Africans. Wow. That was 80%. 80% yeah. of people until 1820 who, yeah. got, you know, who landed in the Americas were Africans. Wow. So their arrival was massive and in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And you know, that contribution also was massive. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know, you know, about, you know, the fact that they mined and they cultivated, you know, the riches of the continent um, and built the cities and towns and, you know, um, but they also uh, introduced new, new uh, ways of cultivating mm -hmm. uh, crops, uh, new ways of, of cattle ranching and blacksmithing and many yeah. other things. Uh, they also created um, uh, English, French, um, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, Creoles. Yeah. Uh, and new languages, yeah. And new languages, new, uh, new cuisine, uh, you know, new religions, new rituals. Um, and, um, you know, they fought for their freedom, they fought for the independence of the country that had enslaved them. Mm -hmm. I mean, their contributions in situations that were absolutely horrendous, yeah. uh, you know, again, you know, their creativity and their resilience uh, were extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, they, they really achieved um, uh, a lot, you know, it's, and again, that, has, that is not um, probably known um, enough, at least. Enough, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's interesting, um, as you were talking about, about the contribution of the Africans who were brought forcibly to the Americas, it, it reminded me of the first time I went to New Orleans a couple of years ago, I witnessed, I, I visited the Whitney Plantation. I don't know if you've been there. And going on the tour on that Whitney Plantation, it was the first time that I'd ever heard. And uh, when I heard it, it made sense, but it's the first time I'd ever interacted with the, the idea that the Africans that were brought to the Americas to be enslaved, um, they didn't come tabula rasa. They didn't come as people who had to be trained and taught things, but actually it's the opposite, that they were selected and chosen um, to be taken from civilizations that, that already had advanced specializations and knowledge. 
And so, for example, the tour guide was saying that in the construction of many great houses on the plantation, in many cases, it was the Africans that were brought that guided um, the Europeans as to how, in what direction to build a house so that air flows through it. Um, you know, those kinds of technologies that they understood coming from tropical climates that Europeans coming from temperate climates might not have understood in the early days of settling the Americas. Um, and that blew my mind because it's something that I had never heard in, in my educational process, at least. Um, having said that, tell us about how Europe has or has not confronted its colonial past and slavery. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's still very, I think, you know, by, by and large, uh, people in Europe have no uh, concept of what colonization was. Wow. Um, it's and and uh, and decolonization uh, as well. Even though it's kind of close to us, because uh, you know, for example, the the French colonies became independent in the 1960s, and mm -hmm. the Portuguese colony in Africa, for example, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it was something that that happened far away, and uh, that probably was seen mostly in a kind of a positive way, you know, because. Uh, you were bringing people who had no cultures, no languages, only dialects, mm -hmm. um, you know, to civilization and modernity. Uh, you know, you know, it was, you know, you were, you went there to kind of help them. Yes. Um, and um, these, you know, the, the, the language that was used at the time was, for example, was, um, was pacification. Mm -hmm. So the idea that what the colonizer found, you know, it was chaos, it was wars, um, etc. And uh, they came to bring peace, right? <laughs> um, you know, so uh, I think that all of that, we, we, we can see, uh, actually, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the hypocrisy Mm -hmm. um, and the cynicism of all of this uh, with World War II main, mainly, but also, you know, starting in World War I. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, when, when I look at, you know, country like, like France, uh, for example, uh, when uh, during those two wars where they were, you know, going to be subjugated by the Germans, mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, fall into, uh, you know, uh, how could I say that, kind of being colonized, if you yeah. will, by <laughs> Germany. Yeah. Uh, they, of course, you know, they and Great Britain and others called on their, the colonial subjects, you know, to come and fight the wars with them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to defend the motherland, mm -hmm. right? And uh, my Senegalese grandfather for during World War One, my father during World War Two, um, and even as you know, France was being kind of you know at you know the imposition of German uh, uh, structures and mm -hmm. uh, etc. Yeah. Even during the war and right after, um, France was launched, is, you know, is, um, uh, wanted to keep 
its uh, its empire wow. intact. And for example, in 1944, so that was still during the war, um, uh, West African soldiers who had just been transferred from France uh, to Senegal, where they where they were where uh, where they were stationed. Mm -hmm. They were massacred by the French army. 300 people were killed, 300 soldiers still in their French uniforms, right? They were massacred because they had their demand, um, uh, 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 part of their pay that had been promised to them wow. that, that was due. Wow. They were rounded up, you know, on a square and just mowed down. Wow. Um, in 1945, um, the massacres of Setif in, uh, in, in Algeria. Um, again, Algerians too had been part of the war effort. Yeah. And uh, they, you know, the, the numbers of the people killed varied, you know, it's estimated between 6,000 and 30,000. That was in 1945. Mm -hmm. 1947, uh, Madagascar, the French army there again massacred between 11,000 and some say as high as 100,000 people. Mm. The war in Indochina started in 1946 and lasted until 19, uh, 1954. And then there was the war in Algeria mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, um, all of this was kind of forgotten, yeah. if you will. And then what happened also is that with the immigration of people from the former colonies in mm -hmm. France, then things started to come up to the surface. And ironically, actually in France today, you know, when people see, you know, the immigration of Muslims, um, Africans, you know, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and others, mm -hmm. you know, they say, you know, that they feel, they feel colonized. And that for them is not good. It was good for the others to be right. colonized. It's not good for them to be, right? So, you know. Uh, so what happened also is that there are ways when this, all this, this history can be presented in a more palatable way. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking um, more precisely, you know, to go back to our conversation about, about slavery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, there's also an immigration of people from the, Carib from the French Caribbean and yeah. French Guyana and Réunion mm -hmm. and other islands of the Indian Ocean that were... Were uh, colonized. What happened, for example, in France in 1998 mm -hmm. is that, you know, there was France celebrated um, in grand, grand pomp um, the 150th anniversary of the abolition of slavery, mm. which, or, which happened, you know, in, in, you know, in the French um, colonies in 1848. Yeah. So we celebrate and we commemorate abolition mm -hmm. but we don't speak about what we abolished what <laughs> was done before the abolition right so um but that there was a wrinkle there because there was a march a silent march of, of forty thousand 
descendant mm -hmm. um, of those people who had been enslaved and yeah. you know to pay um to pay homage to yeah. their ancestors and to kind of break the silence um you know about about slavery yeah and that was also in 1998 mm -hmm. and in 2001 um france was the first and the only country to recognize uh, the uh, slavery and the slave trade mm -hmm. as crimes against humanity, and it was mm -hmm. done uh, thanks to thanks to Christian Taubira, who was then the uh, representative of French Guyana to okay. the National Assembly, mm -hmm. and the one who introduced the legislation, and it was voted and it was accepted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the only other country which also recognized uh, as recognized uh, slavery and slavery as crimes against humanity is Senegal that did it in 2010. Right. But all of that was good, but did it change things? Well, in some small parts, yes, but mm -hmm. for example, 11 years after uh, this recognition, mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a huge memorial built in Nantes, and Nantes was the prominent slave port in mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. And once again, uh, this, uh, this memorial is about what? It's the memorial of the abolition of slavery. Mm. Once again, we talk about abolition, we don't mm -hmm. talk about anything else. Right. And uh, and this this whole enterprise, this whole m memorial, is really uh, is really, in my view, totally shameful. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know bad uh, history, and it's it it has really very little to do with with r reality. But people go there and they are happy, and you know they think <laughs> that you know they are since you know history and uh, all that. Yeah. So, I still see uh, also, you know, a few things being done recently. I think it was like uh, last month, um, Amsterdam um, published a, a book, which is free, um, about the role of the Netherlands uh, in the deportation of Africans uh, to the Americas, about 600,000 people. Huh. And also through the Indian Ocean, because uh, the Netherlands deported about a million people through the Indian Ocean. Wow! So that's one little step. Yeah. Um, also, last month, um, Germany apologized for its genocide in Namibia. Yes, uh, and uh, promised one billion dollars over 30 years in in development aid. Mm -hmm. But the people, the populations who had been victimized by this genocide are actually absolutely uh, incensed because they have not been consulted. Mm. And what they wanted was reparations. Mm -hmm. But European powers, uh, I mean, uh, uh, European countries don't want to open the door to reparations yeah. mm -hmm. at all. Uh, already, uh, Burundi has demanded forty-three billion dollars from Germany hmm. and Belgium. Uh, the, Dem the Democratic Republic of Congo is also demanding reparations. So uh, there is, you know, 
there's no discussion about all that. So what there is today is something like, you know, like regrets, mm -hmm. uh, maybe some kind of apologies, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, let's not go further than that. Let's not negotiate money. <laughs> It's interesting that um, the story that you told about, you know, France celebrating the abolition of slavery um, and not talking about what came before it, because I guess it's easier to say that the abolition was something good that France did um, without having to talk about all the not so good things that happened leading up to the abolition. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and all of these things that you're telling us Dr. Deuce, are so important for people in the diaspora to, to come to terms with, to come to understand, because without understanding and, and knowing about these stories, then we don't have a full picture. The younger generation, obviously, will have to embrace and believe in our stories and history more than ever going forward. How can we modify the way history is perceived and understood by Black youth um, and, and how it's delivered to them? You know, how, how can that be changed so that they see it in a different light because many black youth many youth in general but black youth as well when when you tell them about history they're like oh you know it's it's so boring it's just names and dates how, how do we change that yeah i mean this is this is very very key uh first of all i think that you know for most for young people and i think for most people uh you know all of this you know the slave trade slavery it's ancient history um, you know, it's for, at best, it's in the distant past. Mm -hmm. But all that is completely, uh, it's completely untrue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, my book about the people who were on the Clotilda, which arrived in 1860. Yeah. Well, among them uh, was a young girl, Abake, who became Matilda. She was two. She was mm -hmm. two years old. Wow. On the same. Hmm. She passed away in 1940. Hmm. So she lived through the Middle Passage, enslavement, freedom, Jim Crow, World War One, World War II, the Red Depression. I talked to her grandson and, and her granddaughter. And you know, you know, so there are people today whose grandparents mm -hmm. had been on a slave ship. Yeah. Uh, if we go to Cuba, um, you know, there would be, you know, where slave ships arrived even later, uh, it means that there were people who had been uh, deported through the transatlantic slave trade who were still living in the early 1960s. Wow. So that's when Generation X was coming up. Was mm -hmm. coming up. Mm -hmm. There are people in the United States and in, you know, in other countries in the Americas were born enslaved uh, and lived until uh, the 1980s. Mm -hmm. That's very close to us. Yes, very. And there are people in, um, uh, including in the United States, whose fathers uh, had been enslaved, and and its fathers because men can have children much, you know, for much longer later. than women yeah. do. Mm -hmm. So we have, for example, this case that, um, you know, there was an article uh, recently, I think it was maybe a month ago, about this man 
uh, who was 88, and his father had been enslaved in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So actually, what it all means is that millennials are the first generation of people who had who have not lived at the same time as people who had been enslaved in the Atlantic world. Wow. So we really have to realize how close to us all this is. Uh, it's not ancient history mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, we live with the consequences and the legacy every day. And black, young black people are uh, maybe even more than, than others. Mm -hmm. So they re really are the ones who need to learn um, about this uh, history. And I think that social history, you know, which is not about dates, it's, mm -hmm. not, about, um, it's not about a few great figures. Yeah. Uh, it's really about the lives of the people. And with that, you know, they can have a sense of who their ancestors were, because not everybody was a Frederick Douglass and a Harriet Tubman. Right. And actually, the focus on heroes and calling only a few people heroes obscures the reality, obscures all what the millions and millions of people mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. to fight back, you know, in yeah. many different ways. And so with these three of the people, then you can have a sense of what, you know, what, what the ancestor did yeah. uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And it's, those are stories with real people, with real names. Yeah. So I think it's important, you know, for people to um, understand um, that part of the history and it makes it much more accessible, I think. Yeah, of course. I, I really like how you talked about, you know, this, this tendency that we have to select key figures um, and lift them up and, and which, is, which is fine, but then there's so many others who probably did very similar things, which is that yeah. we don't know about them, the hidden stories, the, the, the voiceless in this process. Um, and, and, you know, they need to be, they need to be honored as well and, and taken into account. To, to come to a close, uh, Dr. Deuce, as someone who has worked with these stories and, and this information, this data all her life, what advice or comments would you give to those who want to contribute to uh, reconciling this narrative, to raise awareness and to reveal this, this, these hidden and forgotten stories? Well, I think that one of the one of the things that uh, that is really close to me is there's a, really a need to uh, to visit or revisit um, the the story of resistance to the slave trade in yeah. Africa mm -hmm. because that's one of the things that people have no idea about. Yeah, I've never heard of it. <laughs> well, that's also why Africans still today are told mm -hmm. you sold us, mm. you know. And um, people have this idea that Africans were perpetrators of the slave trade and they were victims. Mm -hmm. But the victims for them are the people who were deported, and of course they were, but their loved ones as well yeah. were victims, right? So the story is much more complicated than people think. 
-hmm. And um, the, uh, the sort of resistance to the slave trade in Africa is the least studied part of this entire story. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I organized a conference in 2001 and I edited a book uh, which was published in 2003, uh, in 2003 yes, um, about that whole story mm -hmm. with attribution by eminent scholars. And we, we studied all the different uh, protective, defensive, and uh, 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 strategies um, for the people, you know, against the slave trade, and also the offensive strategies how people attack the slave trade. Yeah. So all of this is very important to know because, um, again, it's a major part of the, you know, of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and we also still, you know, with this idea. Also, people want you know, like people to understand. You know, again, it's the people's stories, you know, stories that have not been uh, told or not e not enough. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you um, people in the Americas, I think, have uh, kind of a distorted idea also about what Africans, you know, thought and were doing. Because when if you ask somebody today. Well, you know, if your child disappear, you would say, oh, too bad. Uh, or would you spend the rest of your life looking, looking for them? Mm -hmm. And people, you know, in the Americas, uh, descendants have no um, uh, understanding of what happened in Africa at, at the time. Mm -hmm. But people who could, and it was difficult, but people who could, you know, would go to the coast trying to buy the, the freedom of their loved ones mm -hmm. or inquire about where they were. Yeah. And for example, you know, and it was very, it was very difficult, uh, but there were some who managed to, to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this woman in uh, Rio mm -hmm. who was freed after 20 years because her brother uh, had finally found out where she was and he paid for her freedom. It was in Africa, right? Huh. Um, there's another story um, that I found of an, an African father who went to Pike County, Georgia to buy the freedom of his son. And by then, his son had already had 11 children. So huh. it gives you an idea of the time you know, the father was looking for his son. Yeah. They both died before they could come back. The Incredible. people on the Clotilda, they said, we know our families hunt, hunted for, for us. Mm -hmm. And 50 years after they had arrived in Alabama, uh, a woman who was in, interviewing them to, you know, for a book. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they told her, use our real names, which she did. Because if by chance yeah. the story goes back to where we came from, people mm -hmm we know that we are still alive. So people, you know, were, uh, were um, in the Americas through the slave trade. Mm -hmm. They knew that their loved ones would be looking for them and trying to, you know, trying to, um, to find them. At the hope, they lived with this hope. They knew that it would be very difficult. And of course it was, yeah. but it's not like the people were in the Americas 
had this horrible view of Africans in general. First of all, Africans didn't exist at the mm -hmm. time. Exist at the time. Yes. Um, you know, so we have to understand those those links mm -hmm. also, um, so that you know uh, Afro descendants in the West don't see you know, don't see themselves and their ancestors as just being sold mm -hmm. by Africans. You know, there was, there's a whole story, a whole family, a whole people's story behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, you've, you've just stunned me um, again, Dr. Duke, because it, in, in thinking about uh, enslavement and slavery and the history of all of it, you know, as a descendant of Africans in the Americas, it's so far from us to even start thinking about what happened to the families or, or how did the families left behind, the communities left behind, the, the societies left behind, what did they endure um, mm -hmm. as part of this process? And, and now that you've talked about it and you've raised it, it, it puts a whole different um, spin on things, a whole different perspective, in my mind at least, and I hope in the minds of all who, who are hearing this discussion and who will hear it going forward. Um, I really want to thank you for taking the time out to have this discussion with us. Um, I know talking about these things is not always easy, but you made it seem uh, so accessible, which I guess is testament to the fact that you're an excellent social historian. Um, on behalf of the Black Consciousness Festival, I want to, to say thank you, Dr. Deuce, for, for sharing your knowledge and your insight on these things with us. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Great. Um, for those watching, coming up at um, 1, 1 p.m. Atlantic Standard Time today, we have another conversation, um, reconstituting, restoring, and reconstructing um, what is reparatory justice and why. We'll be talking with Professor Eliza Barkan, who comes out of Columbia University, and Jessica Ann Mitchell Aruyo. That conversation is led by Omari Ashby. So stay tuned and join us at 1 p.m. Thanks again. Thank you.